Welcome to the acclaimed podcast, The Deep Dive, featuring your esteemed hosts, Andy Monitor and Drew Dinzik, powered by Betsperts. Welcome to The Deep Dive. Two divisions in the books. Friday number two, where we get to talk to someone smarter than us. And I, it's not a, you know, this isn't, um, frankly, when we were talking about the idea of let's bring in guests, let's do interviews. This was, it was an excuse to bring Sum on, really. Yes, <laughs> was, like, it, we constructed a whole idea of we'll do interviews. Yeah. It was really just who's, an excuse. Drew, to- <laughs> Drew who's, who's won the world, who's won the most World Series titles ever? Uh, the New York Yankees, obviously. Who's won the most Super Bowls? Uh, boy, at this point, uh, is it the Patriots? Patriots tied with the Niners, both six. I, the Patriots have Are one the only more. six. Okay, I think I thought they had seven. Maybe I'm dead wrong. Well, Tom Brady has seven, but one of them. <laughs> yeah, was Tom the Brady Niners, has seven. So. Well, we'll just go with Tommy. Who has the most deep dive appearances? Oh, Fabian Summer, of course. Um, <laughs> if you are unaware, with some of our joking, you know, Suma goes back five years with us in terms yeah. of gambling chatting primarily about the NFL handicapping. He kind of stands alone as one of the kind of um, most unique handicapping figures because he's dialed in on NFL and NFL only in a way that, uh, um, you know, a lot of people scratch their head. Like you're just going to take on the most liquid market and the toughest to beat and just, okay, best of luck. Um, but you know, if beating NFL sides is sort of the white whale of anyone who's in this space uh i think suma stands alone as sort of the best example of someone who is able to do it and share their picks publicly um and be you know be accountable and kind of do things the right way as far as selling picks for many years and now you move on to a next new stage which i'm excited to ask questions about but uh without further ado welcome back to deep dive mr fabian summer at suma 810 hopefully your off season is going well how are you today so first of all what an amazing uh intro Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> kind of over overwhelmed as always, Drew. Um, <laughs> my summer is doing very well. Uh, cannot complain at all. Um, deep into NFL preparation for the upcoming season. And to be honest, I, I think it's 49 days to go. And that's still way too long. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, and anybody... Anybody who's like old school, it's funny when we make really old like gambling Twitter references to like carbon and shit like just like really old. But like if you're if you are old and you've been around gambling Twitter for a long time, I guess you don't have to be old, you just have to be old in the space. Remember, Mr. Suma here was just a, he was a king of queens avatar with right. like the with like 500 followers when we met him, and he was putting out smart football content though, and we That's definitely right connected right away and yeah how i guess how responsible it has is it is how responsible do you feel for the nfl bringing uh, a game to germany (laughs) uh to be completely honest unfortunately like zero percent i guess (laughs) (laughs) i'm not connected or almost not connected to the german football bubble at all i really started uh, with uh, your country or in your country um mostly English-speaking stuff, and uh, I, I never really got a tune into the um, German football community, so to speak. Well, let me uh, – you, you, you get started 
uh, in the U.S. on Twitter and providing, you know, providing some picks, insights, observations. We follow each other. We get into some chats. We're uh, picking each other's brains. And this is still at a time where I think we were at a similar level of we weren't just betting with our guts. We weren't just using sort of what we had sort of felt that the game was going to go this way at the time. But we definitely didn't have sort of the tools and, you know, um, uh, wherewithal to be able to scrape and, you know, come up with a robust numerical approach to this. Um, you know, is, is that a fair kind of, you know, as you reflect on sort of your evolution as a player, um, you know, what, uh, what stage do you see yourself at now compared to, you know, the five years we've been doing this? Yeah. So, I mean, I remember the year, I don't know, 2013 or what, I was doing some yards per carry analysis <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Like basically just going to teamrankings.com, give me yards per play, net yards per play, yards per carry. Then I did some stuff like, oh, this team got hammered by a few good rushing attacks. They gave up 5.2 yards per carry. Now they're playing against another good rushing attack. They will likely have a mismatch and stuff like that. And yeah. Over the years, and I think we also have to attribute a decent part to the analytics community, um, especially on Twitter, that provided us with some great tools. At some point, I um, digged into programming. Um, I've learned R, and then a lot of stuff became not only easier, but you also suddenly had access to more sophisticated data. And I think... That's probably the the biggest part, like not only doing some simple analysis where I made lots of errors and mistakes in a Excel in an Excel sp spreadsheet. Um, like in 2014, I was doing some some really um, complex correlation analysis between like PFF grades and yards per play and stuff like that. And nowadays, I can do it with two lines of code. So. That's probably a, a very big part of my evolution, just learning how to use uh, tools um, to make better and more sophisticated analysis and do it in a, let's say, automated way. Yeah, being a, being efficient. And it's funny, too. I wonder, you know, if we can just pause this this moment in time and, you know, look back at this in like two years. You wonder how you'll feel about what you were doing today. Because like, you talk about like the first stuff you were doing and, you know, I can remember many, probably 10 years ago almost, where I, I was like, I'm going to use spreadsheet and formulas to figure out like how, who's going to win basketball games. And I mean, literally you just like, what was their points per game? What was their opponent's points per game? And you felt like, man, I just took a big step forward rather than just <laughs> guessing. And it's funny, like every step past that, you felt like, oh man, I was so dumb back then. And then you, know, you you get to where you're at now and you wonder how when you look back in a couple of years but I mean a good point too about the learning R and there's such a good community around that just in general like so many people that are willing to like share and help with packages on that and just solving yeah. other people's problems but and you know just around R but specifically around using R with NFL stats it's wild how quickly that community cropped up. And there is, I mean, anyone who's like, I should sit down and learn some, you know, learn something beyond what I'm doing right now on pen and paper, Excel, like there are a ton of, we should do like a, I don't know, maybe after this podcast, once we let this out on Twitter, we'll have to, we'll have to share some of those resources just for people. Cause I, I'm not going to be able to come up with a comprehensive list right now, but there's a ton 
that can help you just take some data and start, you know, start testing some stuff out. That's the only way you're going to find stuff that's going to beat the market is start to look for places where you think there's edges and then, you know, about fail 99 times because it's like, oh, there's no correlation. This is garbage. Yeah. Like my, my thesis was stupid, but sometimes a, a, a bunch of stupid theses will lead you to something. And that's, you know, usually where you find something. I don't know, Drew, like your fatigue factor in NBA, I'm sure that wasn't like a aha moment that was built off the back of other things you were doing. And it just, you know, you, this didn't work, this didn't work, but I'm seeing minor signal here and you get to something in the end. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that is the, that's very fair. And I think that at this point, you're not going to solve NFL just by learning R. Yes. You need to have a lot of broader understanding of market dynamics at this point. Um, Oh yeah, for sure. uh, Just half, half the the market is. Yeah. But you know, I, I do think that the, the, the kind of easiest shortcut to gaining an edge in any sport is if you can come up with a normalized suite of data that gives you you know, just kind of, you know, gets you closer to what mattered in a given for a given sport. And I, I you know, I'll, I'm, I'm going to lead to a question for Suma here, but if you can get to that data, come up with a way to convert that data into what ultimately is market fair, and then find anything else, any other layer you can put on that, that gets, you know, reduces some of the error by some meaningful amount, then you've got yourself sort of a, a shortcut of an edge. Um, the question is what data to use to get to market fair. And at this point, it feels like the people who are kind of shaping the market in the NFL are largely using EPA per play. Suma, do you agree? And do you think that that in general has left behind other valuable things? Or do you think that there are more valuable ways to take EPA and make it better uh, in the next phase if we kind of reflect on this in a couple of years? Yeah, so I think several years, um, DBOA played a major part. Um, and then at some point, we got to expected points. And I think there were most likely lots of, or maybe not lots of betters, but there, there were certainly betters before we had public EPA per play data that were already calculating their own expected points model or something like that. So I think that if you had a expected points model before that NFL analytics, NFL first R era, I guess these guys would have had a major advantage because the best metric we had up until like 2018, 2017 was DVOA and even DVOA has some major flaws. So, um, I think if you if you had like an expected points added model before that, you probably would have made a decent amount of money. And I think <laughs> nowadays, I mean, you can go to rbsdm.com, running backs don't matter, and get like EPA per play, EPA per rush, EPA per pass for like all the um, different teams. You don't really need any any um, programming skills for it, but I think when you want to get like a small advantage, you have to do some uh, programming for yourself, uh, dig deeper, um, maybe adjust EPA per play for some other use cases. And that way you have to find 
some signal or maybe even um, some data that you can then use and go into a more subjective way of analyzing the game. I wonder, I wonder why it, <clears throat> I think probably because it's a team game and there's so many things that are happening on one play. Whereas like you've seen that the analytics revolution in baseball was early and, you know, obviously some of the, those early stats are, have been greatly improved on like people are excited once we figured out war and, you know, uh, just, you know, some of the, some of the basic money ball, you know, build like Bill James, that sort of stuff and how we've built off that over the years. It feels like the NFL is kind of in that same spot where again, I'm, I keep doing this, but it's, I wonder what, what EPA per play will be in five years. Yeah, no, I, that's, and that, and yeah. I, I think that's where we're at. And that's, I think that's exactly what Fabian's saying is like, the, the people that are going to make money in the next few years are the ones who are able to. And we did talk about this last Friday with, you know, with Cleve. It was like, who's able to contextualize this the best and actually use this in, because again, it, if you start looking at stuff, it's like, well, this happened already. You know, they, mm. these plays happen. We know what happened. If you can take that and use it in a prescriptive sense where you can say like, if, you know, I, I again, I don't know. If I knew, I wouldn't be talking to you, Chuckle Fox. I'd be. <laughs> we would be talking about it on the air. Yes, yeah, we, we wouldn't be talking about it on the air. But, yeah, taking taking what you know from what's happened in the past and applying it in a forward league, like again, prescriptive, saying if if X, Y, and Z happen, we know based on these other external factors, like I I should be making this bet at, at this price. And like it, it's it's gonna be really interesting to see because I think there's a bunch of people. I, I don't think I know there's a bunch of people that are working forward on this. And yeah, it is uh, again EPA per play is gonna be a theme, I suppose, on these Fridays as we already talked about. You know, just well, what happens with turnovers? What happens well, with let, the high let leverage me, plays? Well, let me let me specifically carry this forward. Then uh, presumably there's EPA per play is not the end. There's no there's no way. Like the reason that it was a leap forward from DVOA is because DVOA was a black box. You had to wait for football outsiders to give it to you. EPA per play, you can get it in the moment if you want it. <laughs> like it is, yes. it is, it is very transparent, and it is all of a sudden the tools are in your your are on your laptop, you know, whatever. Um, the EPA per play still though, and this is a good question, you know, kind of philosophy wise, it is a team level. You know, it, it reflects on a given play, all 11 players against the other 11 players who did their job well, blah, 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 as a whole, not as like individually who did their job well, which means there's presumably some way to kind of blend a player level grading like a PFF with a, a team level EPA per play in a way that, um, you know, gives you something more tangible, more useful than EPA per play in the blind. Uh, and I guess, is it important to decompose EPA per play to the various components, the receiver who won his 1v1, the, the quarterback who identified the right, uh, you know, the right read and made the good pass? Uh, you know, I guess, what is your best guess as to the next, uh, you know, the next gold standard of making a, making a market in the NFL? Uh, yeah, so, so just a few thoughts uh, regarding EPA per play. The issue with EPA per play, and that's why I'm always um, um, saying that we have to apply logic and context to all the data that we get and that we use. For example, EPA per play can be very noisy 
with small sample sizes. For example, let's let's take last year's Ravens, uh, who started very poorly on third and fourth downs. Like Lamar Jackson had like significantly below Josh Rosen levels of efficiency on late downs during the first three weeks or something. So his general EPA per play uh, probably looked very low, but you have to dig into it, maybe watch their games uh, in the condensed version, and then you're seeing, oh, he had like an incredible bad luck on late downs. For example, the game at the Lions, I mean, everyone uh, this offseason talks about the 66-yard uh, field goal from Justin Tucker that prevented the Lions from a from their first win that year, but it was also the case that Marquise Brown dropped like three touchdowns. <laughs> he did. That, that, that was a recurring theme for that first part of the year. Yeah, too. shouldn't Not have been close. My yeah. God. Yeah, so, I mean, then when you go back and say that, like, that's some stuff that is probably not going to occur again going forward. So their true EPA per play should have been significantly higher than it was like going into the Denver game last year. So that's an example where EPA, we always have to break it down into some components. Another thing is like EPA is very sensitive to turnovers and where turnovers occur. So if you are in front of the opposing goal line and you throw a pick six, that's like minus 13 expected points added and when you throw a interception that gets not returned at the uh, 50 yard line that's like minus two or three epa so that that's all the stuff that you really have to dig into and keep in mind when dealing with that kind of data okay is an approach then to look at cleaning the outliers or do you try to leverage stuff that's i mean that's kind of where we're at last week and with that and just like what suma said it gets touchy about that sort of thing where a marquee let, let's let's throw out marquis brown because he did drop a lot of passes but like an outlier individual performance on a single play that happens to have a high leverage event like just you know a, a, a receiver who has very low drops over a big sample size bobbles a catch and it just bounces off the back of a defender and another defender picks it off and it was late in the game. And I mean, the, the win probability takes a big shift, but obviously it's it's a massive EPA sw- swing. If I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. A turnover is going to be massive regardless. No matter where you are on the field, it's not the same as you know a left tackle who has just piss poor player grades, who's has like a super high rate of getting beat. You know, pressures the loud rate. Like th- this guy, we know it's a known quantity. He's struggling, and he's going against a pass rusher who has a high win rate, a high pressure rate, and there's a forced fumble on that play. You know, those are both the, the same end result as far as you lost the ball, the other team has the ball. But one of those is one of those happened because you know the external factors. It was bound to happen. You know, one of those wasn't so predictable, and I don't I don't know if you should be treating it the same. But at the same time, you can just throw all that away and say, well, football is highly variant too. Like sometimes shit just happens, and yep. you know, it, it, I think you have to have a game like you said with the the Lions, the Lions Ravens, where maybe one of those things happening, it's all right. Things happen. We can't predict that high level variance deviance, but in a game where you have like three or four, just not black swan, like but like full outlier events for that, like that shouldn't happen those players are better than that or that player's worse than that. He shouldn't be doing that. 
and and it just changes you know the the EPA on those those you know like I, I can't think of what a good amount would be but you take four or five plays like that that shouldn't have happened and the EPA swing on those is massive so you you what you're saying it's is we need to develop that. EPA per play over expected under expected yes and so basically like Lamar Jackson on a fourth a and letters, one so. Lamar Jackson on a fourth and one or even just a neutral team on a fourth and one converts 50% of the time. And the EPA per play on that conversion is worth blank in a vacuum. His was coming in low. You have a big negative and you start to add those up over the balance of the game. And your team is like, wow, they way underperformed what they should have because the high leverage stuff really flipped their EPA or vice versa. And then maybe you have a little signal where you have some team level regression that you can kind of, use in a predictive sense does that sound like a plausible framework yes like for example i mean mm -hmm. uh, also we also have to always think about our priors for example lamar jackson we would expect some regression towards the mean especially next season because last mm -hmm. season he was pretty good on, on early downs bad on late downs mm -hmm. i would expect that um he uh, regresses more to his career path on late downs which is not special not Patrick Mahomes like, but it's pretty solid. Um, but let's take some someone like Zach Wilson. So Zach Wilson on early downs, where we would expect more stable quarterback play year to year, has been like the worst starting quarterback over the past four seasons. And <laughs> we don't have any priors, so we cannot sure. tell like does will he regress more towards the upside or is he just bad? Is he just a, another Josh Rosen? We, we just don't know. That's fair. Um, here's a question, though, for you on the Lamar Jackson example. Do you actually need EPA per play over under expected? Or is it more valuable and more useful to just have EPA in your pocket? Look at the tape the way you're going to look at it anyway, or watch the games because you're going to watch them anyway because you're a fan or you're it's part of your process and then use a mental model to say, oh, well, Lamar Jackson's EPA is low, but that's going to it's going to progress to the good just because, you know, right. You don't need to actually have a like a uh, an actually calculated value to tell you how much it is. You just have seen it and, you know, and I'm basically describing you do this long enough and you kind of solidify your quantitative framework or your your infrastructure, your underpinnings quantitatively. And at that point, you start to see mental model kind of come into play where, oh, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going to regress positively. That's going to regress negatively. Is that part of your process at all? And is that kind of you know where you are at this stage as far as being a, a better and using uh, the numbers in, an, in a predictive way? Yes, that's basically exactly my current process or let's say a major part of, of my process. Um, I have tried different things in recent years, like um, models uh, where you calculate win probability and turn it into spreads and stuff like that. Uh, I've built a backtesting structure to, to um, try different, different things, um, really try to work on, on different quantitative stuff. I have also used power ratings uh, in the past, but... I'm also a big proponent of uh, self-scouting and I, I always go back, especially in the off season to, to look at what was my thought process, what has worked, what didn't work, what can I do better? What can I throw out? And I've really also some strong statistical evidence from my past results 
that my mental model or let's say my subjective handicapping approach is like my bread and butter. So um, <laughs> um, models and power numbers have rather clouded my thought process in the past instead of actually helping me uh, find edges. And, I mean, we talked about that a little, Drew, the, the other day just in our preview series where we were talking about like, hey, you know, if I downgrade this team, if I upgrade this team and we get to this week three and it's, I think it was what, Chiefs, was it Chiefs-Bills? Chiefs-Bills was the example. And you said, we yeah, if you give me that, two yeah. and a half, like, I'll have to think about it, but there's still so many things. Like, the reason for the downgrade has to be like the Bills secondary is stinking and, you know, the, the Chiefs have to stay at their current level and the, the new wide receiver core, the new look has to stay the same. So a lot of it is like, you know, the numbers almost, I like what Fabian said, they're clouding you a little. You have to use that a little bit first and foremost, just to have like a baseline, but still, you know, you, you have to look at it a little subjectively. And I, I don't worry about this with you at all, Suma, because I feel like you're, I mean, you're born pragmatic. You're, you're German. That's just how it works. Like, uh, you guys, you guys are born on the top of the hour. That's how it works. The like, clock hits uh, three o'clock, and out pops a baby, and it's just like trains. But I mean, th there is the danger for some, I suppose, would be letting your inherent biases trickle into some of that subjectiveness, especially if you if you have a strong prior. I think that's probably the the biggest danger of doing that for someone maybe who isn't been doing it for as long as you or drew or maybe even me but if you have a strong prior on a team and then it just maybe it wasn't in the cards it was a bad handicap or the things that you expected are not happening and i feel like there's a decent chance you're going to try to force it when you go back and rewatch and say like oh he's supposed to like oh i'm really really banking on this wide receiving core being good and some of those borderline ones be like, oh, no, that should have been a catch. That should have been a touchdown. Like this wide receiving core is greatly underperforming. And you're so anchored to your priors that it's just going to mm. continue to turn into a pit, which is and I don't know. The, the answer to that is very difficult because you do have to have some conviction if you think, you know, you know what you're doing. But that becomes a little bit of a sort of slippery slope. And I really time like like you said Fabian it's just doing it for so many years I think that's all what it takes to get to that point where you're able to you know break yourself of worrying too much about anchoring yourself to what you thought before the season I don't know do either you does that well let, me, well let me propose this as a thought which is is it does it all come out in the wash right like the times you anchor yourself to a prior that you're convicted in and you're wrong Versus the times you anchor yourself to a prior and the regresses in your favor. Is it, is it a, about a 50, 50 uh, or is, you know, if you're, if you're doing it long enough and you have enough experience, it's 60, 40, your favor. Like that's really all you need to really make it work mm. in the NFL. Um, especially with small sample size issues. Um, the, uh, the other kind of question, I guess is uh, presumably if, the numbers got if the if the true quants are setting mostly the early market or middle middle of the cycle market and you have a quantitative layer that tells you that there's something funny about the numbers then presumably that opens up as many edges as uh you know the quantitative uh part in the first place uh and so yeah you may have some specific examples where it's like oh no like the quants are here, the quant plus is here, and 
you know, there's a, there's a, there's, you know, you're on different sides of a, of a given side for various reasons. Uh, you know, that the, the general, um, qualitative layer should be able to help elevate anything that you're doing quantitatively, I think. Yes, exactly. And you always, um, I think whether you have a quantitative approach or a subjective approach or whatever, and you are making your numbers, I mean, in the end, you, you don't really care about hitting numbers exactly. You always want to be directionally wide. So if you use any quantitative models or power ratings and you are able to put a subjective layer on top of it, which gives you uh, directions that are better than 50% in the long run. I mean, that's all it takes. Yeah, I like that concept a lot. Um, let's talk about the market a little bit. Um, yeah, that was the that's kind of the next step is like evaluating that same kind of thing when there's yeah. market forces that go the other way. And you, yeah. have to go, you almost have to go do this whole process in reverse and go back and figure out like, the market knows like for the most part, the market is, the market is smarter than anyone. We should have the market on one of these Fridays. Um, <laughs> I mean, essentially we are. Mr. Mark, having... I've got, I've got some requests into Mr. Market and I have not yeah. heard back. The, the um, fact that, yeah. The know. fact that we're having a bunch of smart handicappers on, this is the market guys uh, yeah. in the kind of vis-a-vis, -vis, but you know, that working in reverse from something where you're seeing, continually maybe it's not working against you but you're neutral on on something and it continually works one way and it's surprising you like do you do any sort of reverse engineering that way with the i don't know what you were going to say on the market drew that's that's kind of where my head was at while we were talking about this well that, i think we can fine tune that question a little bit but let me just kind of step back and get fabian's opinion on just sort of the current state of the nfl market like how do you see a market cycle play out from a sunday opener through when limits go up through when we see the uh the real kind of heavy action come through on the uh, on the weekend yeah so usually um sunday night overnight some offshore books are opening their markets usually bet online first and then um to be honest i don't really pay any attention to or not a lot of attention towards um, Sunday night openers because I know in the past I um, didn't have a lot, a lot of intention to bet them anyway. So, um, And what's also a big part of my process is that when I start my work Monday morning, I try to not look at any market number before I'm creating my own numbers because I don't want to get any bias or any anchor towards the current market number. Um, so I usually don't pay a lot of attention on the on these Sunday um, overnights. Um, only start looking at the markets on Monday morning. Yeah, and then on Monday morning, um, you usually see like a lot of moves early on where you think like, oh, that opening total is too low or it's too high, that it's currently 50, it should rather be 51. Um, um, and you really see that your initial thoughts get immediately reflected in the marketplace by the screen moving heavily throughout the day on Monday. So um, I think that the NFL market in general has become sharper earlier in the week over the years. Um, uh, but 
I also think that we have seen these Monday morning moves for several years now, but it, I think it, it got more and more public throughout the uh, sports betting media. Like last year, we had Adam Chernoff blasting some Monday morning um, lines with his Twitter releases or just in general, his tweets on Monday. He had a lot of market influence. So I think that the PFF forecast does a very good job on, on Sunday night talking about openers, Eric Eager and George. They are basically betting them right during, during the live show. So I think that our brain got a lot of... Uh, got a lot more content about um, openers in general. And that's why we also recognize um, like a, a lot of sharp um, uh, moves early in the week. Um, yeah, and then I think on Tuesday, Wednesday, the bigger action usually starts. Um, some PPHs are going up, some PPHs with higher limits going up, Pinnacle, Quiz, and Bet Online raising their limits on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then you... Um, basically see like a more of a maturing of the market that then we have like the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday injury reports that produce a lot of market movement. Um, and then usually I think from Friday evening, my time towards early Sunday morning, there's like a pause in the market where there's not a lot of stuff that's going to happen on a Saturday, especially when there's college football season, like, Lots of guys are um, saving their credit for Fridays and Saturdays to bet into higher limit CFB markets. And then Surely. they start um, coming back on NFL on Sunday mornings when their credit is back up or they get the, they get the money back that they have won on the PPHs. Um, and then, yeah, we see a lot of movement again on Sundays. That's basically how I would describe the market movement. Okay, that's a very, very good encapsulation. We should probably clip that and send it out in case people are kind of curious about what we're talking about. Um, that, was, yeah, that, was a, that was a really good summation, too. And that is something, too, like you talk about with a once high-limit paperhead locals, whatever you want to call it, go up in the middle of the week. Like That's something I've wanted to look at this year. And I'm going to start track because, like, we obviously look at the Sunday openers. We do a show around it, you know. We're, well, you got to get spank odds to know when the limits go, yeah, up, right? We got to get the we got to get the spank odds, but <laughs> we're obviously paying attention to that. And we've mentioned that a couple times, but we just never fully. I don't know if you've you have any record of this, but there are some where it's like, all right, it moved a little bit. You know, the the Sunday line was a little shit. It took some early money because it just wasn't quite the right price. And the ones that do that and then continue like they may, and it, it doesn't have to be like some huge Wednesday move, but you know, a team gets bet from four and a half to five, you know, not an important number. And then it just, it trickles up a little, but then Wednesday comes and it gets hit all the way up to six, six and a half. Like the ones who take the Sunday move and the Wednesday move, like those are just the strongest kind of signal. And, you know, I feel like th there was a little bit of uh, Andy using that, kind of quietly on oh, some course. first half stuff of course and like there were i, I didn't make a mint but like there's some signal there to like i'm gonna just start betting these teams first half we and have to get Dan to cut this part of the podcast 
Yeah, there, um, there is. There's definitely some. There's definitely some signal there, and and it's it's wild too because then you see that like Fabian's talking about the Sunday morning money. And I think a lot of people maybe it's that's one of those. I want to zero in on. It it is one of those misconceptions. It's one of those things when you're coming up in this and you're learning more about it. Like oh, parlays are bad. Well, there's a lot to be said about that. It's like oh, the book wants 50-50 splits. Well, we could talk about that too, guys. One of those I think maybe a misconception also is like only the public bets on Sunday morning. And that's, I mean, the public does bet on Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong. That's still they're not moving the, the number. A number yeah. moving on Sunday morning is because of a group has hit that hard. Yes. As hard it's, as they possibly can. And usually that is done with conviction and it's not based on inside information. And I guess Andy's right. The Sunday, the, the early market moving ends when we start to get injury information. That's kind of the end of that cycle in my mind, because anything that happens in the interim is, you know, people are moving those numbers based on in information before it becomes public. Surely we've, been, yes. we've all been part of that <laughs> where, yes. oh, Stafford's not going to play against the Bears this week. Uh, OK, I'll take six. Happy, happy to take plus six, you know, and then by the time he, he's like questionable on Wednesday, it's moved to three. And by the time he's doubtful on Saturday, it's. You know, it's, it's a pick them, right? Um, you know, like that, you know, the there are for sure people who paint their opinion on injuries before it becomes public knowledge with an injury report, surely. But once it the injury cycle starts, you know, mostly it's just people kind of moving based on like perceptions of what a player value means. The stuff that comes in late is the stuff that I find the most interesting because number one, I don't know who it is. No fucking clue who's doing yeah. this. Um, and number two, they're not doing it. They're they're doing they're they're making their opinions known uh, by moving the number in this incredibly liquid market when limits are up. And it's always interesting to me to see if they're right or wrong, because because um, you know think about where we, where we are. We spend all week thinking and talking about this stuff. We've decided that Eagles versus Washington football team is a fair number Eagles. at plus four. It is dead fair. That is absolutely right. I am not betting this game. You wake up on Sunday morning and it's six. You're like, what the hell? Like somebody was like that sure that four was wrong. And I, I don't know why. And so you're like, okay, well, somebody out there who has influence and is presumably smart is sure that the Eagles are underrated or that Washington is overrated. One of those two, I don't know which. Uh, and so you watch the game and I'm always inclined to see if, you know, like if they're right or wrong or if they're right. Why were they right? Like, what was it about it? Was, was, were they right because Washington is overrated or were they right because Philly is underrated? Or if they were wrong, like the next week, now I have Philly and Washington's game circled. And I'm like, which one's going to move, Right. Which what what was it? Yeah, Which, if you can't yeah, figure yeah. out why the the why is the trickiest part, and that's always like mm. the three things that you really circle is the hard Wednesday steam when yeah. limits up, um, steam that comes out when there's a massive injury question mark that is not answered yet, <laughs> and it's, so it's like, hey, we're waiting for the Friday injury reports. And Thursday, 10 p.m., a number moves. Because we definitely point. don't have that information, so you got to pay attention to this. Scene. Yeah, so, so like, yeah, you're, you're waiting on big entry news, and the night before, it's like 10 p.m., and it moves a whole point, or the total yeah. drops a point and a half. Some, you know, something just wild like that. Yeah. That is, that Dak is Prescott is questionable. He's been talking about how his cap doesn't feel good, 
and the Vikings went from three point dogs to two and a half point favorites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right. yeah, and then yeah. you know, then obviously the Sunday yeah. money, and like like you said, it's it's there's almost this disappointment when there's that Sunday move or any of these that you don't understand why, yeah. and then you watch the game. And it's not apparent why at the end of it, you're just kind of, it's like a letdown. Like, fuck, I didn't, like, I didn't solve the, it's like playing a game of clue and then just, well, nobody won. <laughs> we didn't figure out who, who killed the guy. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, you, you have to, like you said, you circle those two teams next week and kind of see, all right, which one of these is going to take some steam. And sometimes neither of them does because it was something mm-hmm. specific about that matchup. And in yeah. the end, you're left very unsatisfied Year, weeks and years down the road thinking yeah. about that game. How much do you pay attention to this stuff, Suma? The Sunday stuff, especially. Oh, a lot. So because <laughs> I mean, um, mostly when I've made all the bets, there's really nothing to do on Sundays. But I'm <laughs> a little bit of an addict to watch the closing line value. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so um, when there's a game that moves heavily against me on Sunday. I get super nervous because there are groups or um, guys betting six figures uh, into a market and are pushing the number against me. That's that's usually a bad sign. Um, not always because we all know that uh, the closing line cannot be right 100% of the time. And sometimes, um, I mean, there are various reasons why people with a lot of money would bet on Sunday morning. Either they are grinding some tiny edges, which is uh, still valuable if you're betting some six-figure yeah, amount of money. <clears throat> then there are some games that just want to flood um, their accounts with um, quote-unquote dump Sunday morning NFL money, That's betting into liquid uh, markets. And then there's also some stuff which was very apparent during the COVID season 2020. Like there were some guys, I, I will not say any names, but you, you could very well track movement from guys or groups that were just trying to middle any any number in any given week. Like they would bet um, over 49 and a half on Tuesday morning, then you maybe get over 50, then the market moves to 51 or 51 and a half, and then on Sunday morning, they get back on 51 and a half just to middle their game, but it has nothing to do with um, your closing line value being bad. It's just evaporating because some group wants to get a very good middle on they want a certain number. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, evaluate or elaborate a little too on the, the I loved how you did air quotes to, uh, just in case people don't understand what the benefit of this would be, even if you lose money doing this, the putting dumb NFL Sunday morning bets into an account, like explain, you know, why some people would be doing that as, you know, as cover play. Yeah. So, I mean, if you bet at Pinnacle or Chris or whatever directly, um, they will not care what bet you make essentially. But if you are betting into, let's say some big local or PPH accounts uh, where you risk um, that the accounts are getting shut down at some point because your action is too sharp. And then there are a lot, a, a lot of PPH accounts like these sports for 2-2 or whatever that are directly um, connected to a bet quiz, for example, or they are usually um, um, collecting and um, copying all, all the exact screen from Pinnacle or Chris or something. But it's possible that there's a connected account that is run by some 
local guy with some fat bags, but he wants to cut out, uh, cut out everyone that has an edge or has a pulse or whatever. And then there are groups that um, basically only play, let's say, college football or college basketball. And for college basketball, I mean, it's uh, Andy, you have to know it. It's very important to be very good at betting college basketball, but sustaining all, all your accounts. It's very uh, for some groups during college college basketball season or college football season is basically a hunt to keep all your accounts alive, consistently getting new accounts. And if, if you have some big accounts where you can feed some um, square NFL action on a Sunday morning, where the bookie sees like, oh, that's probably not a sharp account, and maybe that helps you to overcome one more week during college football season or college basketball season. These guys will probably into like a zero percent hold or a zero percent edge market on sunday morning just to keep some some accounts alive yeah paying the tax basically just to yes, keep yeah. the uh, available um, yeah, you, you, know, you crush all day liquidity. saturday college football you need to give you need to give them a bunch of nfl plays <laughs> square hopefully maybe even some parlays some bad teasers yeah. and just to make sure you don't get a bad text on monday like, hey, i'm paying you but if you're done yeah, that's fair. Um, okay, well, that's interesting that you kind of pay attention to the Sunday stuff too. What I guess um, in the case where it's a game that moves big time on Sunday and you felt like the price was fair all week, um, do you try to incorporate any of that signal into your adjustments or projections for the following week? Uh, not really, no. Okay. Okay. It's more just like passing interest to you as opposed to yes. like, I'm going to utilize this as a, in a forward sense. Okay. Um, but what if it's happening what about, continually though? I mean, well, no, at a, at a well, me, actually, I think, I think there's a way to use it and it's not like in a way it's not, this is all kind of contextual, but like if Philly gets steamed two points on Sunday morning and the following week I had Philly circled cause I liked matchup advantages against the giants or something like that. And then I see it open four and a half. I'm like, fuck, I got to be a little bit more aggressive to get my bet down early because everybody knows that Philly's hot right now. Right. Like they, they would like, that's a team that's hot. That's going to get steam, uh, you know, as we get into the mar later market cycle. So maybe you can't wait till Wednesday to get your bets down on that. Right. Like that's kind okay. of the only sort yep. of, um, it feeds into the decision-making process of how you get down. I think. Okay. A bit. Yeah. Agree. Um, are you, uh, this is the first year you're not releasing plays, uh, via a subscription service. What, uh, you know, I, I guess, are you expecting any differences in sort of how your plays hit the market broadly? Um, and, uh, you know, I think, are you, is it going to be eye opening just to see, uh, how the market, uh, either agrees or disagrees with, the the plays you're making in secret? <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Because I mean, the hard part and um, that's why it got a little bit tricky and and I basically got limited in the way that um, uh, we could bet be was because I always wanted to release the best number and that means that when you bet something out before release you cannot hit the, hit the screen. Sometimes it, it may occur that you are betting something quietly and some other group is betting the same at the, at, the, at the same moment, uh, at the same moment, at Pinnacle and Chris or whatever, and then the um, screen will uh, move, even though if you, even though you you haven't touched it at all. But then um, when I released a play, 
And especially early in the week, you get that immediate feedback in the market, like where everyone is rushing to bet that stuff. And there's an, an initial, let's, let's call it chasing of the number. And the, yeah, market the, will... the, the right angle effect, yeah. Yes, yeah, basically. So, and then you have that initial market reaction. So, you know, I released Pegas minus three. It moved to minus three and a half on a Tuesday evening. And that's mostly entirely tracked back to my release. But what I will also say is that I'm still not creating any closing line value for myself with those releases because it's such a high liquid market that by the end of the week, that release will not matter in the grand scheme of the um, volume of the NFL market. So I think that the closing line value is still very real and not really affected by a release on, let's say, Tuesday evening or something. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So um, I think next year, because I don't have to release plays, it will be easier for us to bet because um, if we need any more liquidity or want to bet more or whatever or we we need to hit the screen we can just do it and not care about any releasing on my part for my members for, for, for all the paying um subscriptions so we can basically just bet and um if you get down quietly um or even if you bet it at let's say chris or pinnacle the line moves immediately but then that's it and then what happens after that is uh, not because of your release. And I think you basically get a better and um, truer immediate feedback if there's any further market movements. I, I wonder too, and I, you, you said it well, like <clears throat> you have an influence in the market, but maybe not on the closing. You know, it, it, it's not like you got fake CLV because you have all these clients that were betting when you were making these releases. Like in the, in the long run, like the there's so much money in an NFL market that it's going to find its level based on who's betting it. But I do wonder because when you were betting earlier in the week and the number moves a little more easily, let's say, and you had some people who, you know, were tailing along with you, maybe betting enough numbers, enough money and doing it on the screen where it was moving and you were seeing like, maybe let's call it an overreaction to your, your action or your release. Mm -hmm. I often wondered, it's like when people come back on that, it's like, you know, would if you hadn't released that play, would those people have ever bet that side? Which, you know, the answer to them, if they're waiting for a, a certain number and it doesn't get there because you didn't release it the other way, the answer would be no. But I often wonder, is like the people who bet that, like if they're doing it in a way where it's noticed, like then they're creating too much steam on the other side. And sometimes, so I, you know, I think of the butterfly effect of all that is like, if you hadn't released it, this bigger group wouldn't have come back at like plus three on the other side and it wouldn't get smushed down so far. And, you know, it's just, I guess there's a million different factors in that, but it is curious how, like, you know, you say in the long run, the, the number ends up where it should be, but you still have an effect on the overall cycle, which is just okay. so, it's so hard to, to kind of fathom like what would have happened if things this wasn't even a question this is just my brain trying to comprehend I, how that i works. would still contend that most of the people that were interested that would have pushed back are not most of them i don't know a lot but, of like, them, it, but a lot of them know it's coming from soon <laughs> right? yeah. like if, if you know where it's coming because 
God, and this is a, a another discussion discussion for another day. Maybe we'll wait a couple of years, and you, you, you know, you you you're you moved up to Emboss NFL, and you can really tell me how it works. But um, <laughs> knowing who bet what, when, where, like that kind of matters. And if yes. anyone is out there, kind of really move, you know, Mister Market for the NFL knows that Suma bet that released this right. Like there's not there's no surprise. Like you don't know who's on the other side of that. Um, this year there'll be a little bit more intrigue because you won't know exactly where it came from in the in that sort of middle you know early cycle, which is exciting. Um, but tune into the Matchbook Pod; you find out on Thursdays, I guess. Um, yeah, I was going to say we're going to bug you all. <laughs> when we see moves, we're going to bother you. Yeah, no, you'll find out after the fact. Uh, no, in seriousness, though, the, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to watch just because it was fascinating to watch the last couple of years uh, from you know when it was the other way around. But um, I, I always appreciate looking at the market dynamic side of this stuff. Um, can I ask you one question about uh, your process when, as it relates to injuries? We were kind of teasing. But this has become a huge part of what I'm doing, not just in the NFL, but all sports of just trying to anticipate injuries before it becomes public. Um, There are a handful of accumulator accounts now that are so, so, so good at uh, consolidating injury information quickly that you kind of have to beat them if you're really going to get the edge, if if there is something that is an injury that matters. what is your general philosophy for guessing? Do you guess about availability? And uh, you know, when you, if you guessed, if you move the market, and then the injury comes out, and the market moves even more, like is that an opportunity to come back? Like, you know, how do you evaluate like what is a fair adjustment for an injury, uh, and then just in general the current cycle around uh, you know market dynamics related to player availability. Yeah, I think anticipating injury statuses is very important, at least for me, uh, because once uh, Mal Humphrey gets ruled out on a Friday afternoon, the market is moving and you will not get the best number. So you basically have to anticipate stuff. Sometimes it's really um, much uncertain and you maybe sometimes don't want to take a risk, but I think very often times you, have to take, you also have to take a risk and gamble a little bit on certain injury statuses uh, if you know that over the long term you are basically hitting those more than 50% of the time. Um, Because once someone important gets ruled out, the market moves and you are losing value. So if you're anticipating that a player is more likely to sit than to play, um, but, but even if a player is injured and doesn't get ruled out, it doesn't mean that he will be effective in 100%. So let's say cornerback uh, pulls his hamstring late in the game, but is still able to walk on the sideline. That likely doesn't mean that he's automatically uh, going to get ruled out on a Monday. But um, if he doesn't get a practice in on Wednesday and uh, DNP again on Thursday, I mean, it's pretty um, obvious that he's likely not going to play. And then if you like that side and um, that player being out gives you like a little bit more of an edge, you just have to go it on you have to go for it on a Thursday instead of waiting for a Friday. I, I like to use the corner too. I, th- I think it, it varies. Like you say, using your mental model, using some subjective stuff. I think people think that the people who beat major markets are doing everything in this black box, like model, like uh, the computer just spits out who, who to win because I know Python and I can, so no, it's <laughs> like, th- there is something to be said for 
oh shit, this player's in. I think a lot of times you see that where it's like it was 50-50 and then the player turns out to be in. And maybe it would have been a better result for that team if he wasn't. Like they, you know, teams teams make mistakes all the time. They put players yeah. out there who probably shouldn't be, or you find out, oh, he's in, but the team was actually smart enough to know, like, hey, he's on a snap count, or he's only available, yeah. or, or a decoy, re- or yeah. or he's a decoy, or yeah, or he just re-injures it right away again. Like the, you know, the, a lot of times this happens where if you feel like you have, you know, even 60-40 that you think this player is out or ineffective. It's it's almost uh, it's usually a trigger pull for me because I think it's it's much rarer to see like oh my god he's much healthier than we thought and he's more effective than anyone could have expected like that happens it just doesn't happen that often. Do you subscribe at all to the idea that because I've heard smart people say this like outside of quarterbacks outside of cluster injuries most of it's noise. I would disagree. I would too. <laughs> I would too. I mean, if TJ Watt sits out in week one, that's a completely different Steelers defense. Like going from I don't know, like twenty first in the league to like thirty first. So I mean, <laughs> oh, <wow>. yeah, <laughs> there was a little bit of an over exaggerating. My Steelers number. <laughs> a, a little bit of over exaggerating, but a guy like TJ Watt, where the defense, especially on the back seven, is has so so few talent. I mean, that would be a massive injury to the whole defense, and that would certainly move some things for me. Okay. Well, and you you bring up a good point, too. Like, if it's so many things work in tandem, positional groups in the NFL work in tandem where, Mm -hmm. hey, you know, let's talk about, like, the the Bills again, where it's, hey, they have a good front seven. Secondary is a little rough right now with whiteout, and that might be a problem. And if they have an edge rusher that gets dinged up and is maybe on a snap count and rotational guys have to come in more and then one more gets injured, you know, you're not quite at cluster injury level, but boy, if your pass rush is supposed to be your strength and the secondary is already weak, like you're looking at a big, big downgrade, even if these aren't big name players, like these aren't MVP level players, but it's just looking at the overall dynamic of that, you know, the, your offense or your defense, with those players out, it's like, man, they're, they're going to take a big step backwards yeah. based on like your, your TJ Watt example is very good too. It, it can sometimes just be one player. Dude. If the pass rush suffers for the Steelers, that Go, secondary yeah. is, that secondary is going to be getting, you know, just shredded because look at let's the, take, uh, there's no pressure. Let's take, at, you're good. Let's, uh, let's take the charters in recent years. Like um, there were some phases where they had Melvin Ingram. Okay. But there were phases where they only had Joey Bosa on the edges. And the the, the second uh, pass rusher is like Uchina and Bosa. Like when Joey Bosa goes out, there's like zero pass rush on their defense. And <laughs> that that's really massive. But I will also say that injuries, I think you can say that every injury on, on every week has the same linear um, impact because it always depends on the matchup. Like sure. there are some certain matchups where a uh, player A um, would have a would have more of an impact instead of in other weeks. Yeah, you think uh, think I, the best example I can come up with is Ali Marpet, guard for the Bucks. You who? How much is a as a guard worth? Anything? Very well. Little, very for, little. When when Tom Brady is the quarterback and you're up against a team like the Saints that could prov- that knew how to prov- you know to create interior pressure, 
then the next thing you know, the Saints are going to Tampa in primetime and winning 38-0, right? Like that was, it just, you know, there are certain injuries and in certain positions that matter more for certain teams. Everybody, everything is kind of case by case basis. And even in a vacuum, I think knowing that if you can guess correctly about an injury, that doesn't have to be the reason to make a bet anyway. It can just be that I have an edge on the Ravens this yes. week. They're going up against the, uh, you know, the Steelers. I don't think TJ Watt's going to play, but I don't care. I, even if he does play, I still like this side. But directionally, this is going to move in favor of the Ravens if yes. he is questionable exactly. or you know or not doesn't play ultimately, right? Like you know, there's you know that's I think that's the most effective way, honestly, to approach this, where you have an independent edge, and then you're like, okay, I need to get this down before we see any injury report. It's a it's a nice bump. Yeah, it's a nice bump to an edge. I I want to bring up guys. You know, Marpet is a name. I mean, sometimes. I think when people and maybe the market as a whole focuses in on like quarterbacks are important and like big important names are important, but like literally like a replacement level guard having to sit out and then finding out, you know, the guy who's backing him up because his team lacks depth has really never started in the NFL, maybe played on the other side. They weren't really, you know, equipped to handle losing this guy. And it's, it's two players that most people have never heard of, the guy in and the guy out. Now, if that team's playing the Falcons, it probably, you know, that, yes. news, doesn't, that news doesn't make it out of, you know, it's, it's just a blip on the radar. If that team's playing the Rams, you, yeah. it's getting focused on heavily on the broadcast because Aaron Donald suddenly has three and a half sacks. And, yes. you know, th there's, there's big, big problems. So like those little <laughs> ones too, like everything does kind of come down to that, that matchup scheme. Once you get to it, and oh, it can, it can be just no, it can be no name players. We're placement that, level players missing three. at the wrong time. Andy, you don't even know how good that example was. Marpet missed three it game happens. stretch. Right. Marpet missed a three game stretch for the bucks. They get whacked by the saints. They lose to the Rams. They, <laughs> they still beat the hell out of the Panthers didn't matter <laughs> you know so yeah yeah i 100 agree with this if um, you are going to lose your uh, let's say elite left tackle against the falcons this year it will probably not moment. matter a lot <laughs> not going to adjust my number got it um let's talk I, I about this it's my worst friends what a what a segue what a segue for this year um get a couple thoughts on this season coming up since we have you here you know there's still a lot to be shaken out uh, so i don't want to put you too much on the spot but as you've gone through and done all of your team um you know team uh preparations for 2022 campaign uh are there any teams where you were off market either to the good or the bad that really surprised you um yes yeah, so first of all and uh i might get a comment from Eric Eager, but I'm not really buying into the hashtag Restore the Raw hype this year. Ah, interesting. Um, I mean, the hype around the Lions uh, when it comes to make the players yes, no, over, under, win total is very insane. Uh, but it's also very entertainment attending to, to, to watch it on Twitter. Um, but when I duck into the team, I mean, the Lions, it's still a very bad defense, and I don't think that Aiden Hutchinson is going to make such a huge difference. It's still a very inexperienced uh, cornerback group. Um, and then on the other side, I mean, the, the quarterback is still Jared Goff. So um, 
the last three years, um, Jared Goff's passing grades or, or PFF grades in general were, I think, 72, 71, and 61. And two of those years include Sean McVay telling him what the defense is in with 15 seconds to go um, on the play clock. So, I mean, I have to, I will believe it when I see it, but I'm not really uh, buying into the line side at all. I, I think the, the win total is um, pretty fair. I think it's six and a half right now when I'm not, not wrong. I think that's fair. I mean, what did they really do on offense to upgrade? They got DJ Chark for the outside who they like um, running go routes. I don't think that Jade Goff is consistently, consistently going to hit them. Um, then Jameson Williams, um, first of all, is coming off an ACL. He's a rookie and he will likely not play until like late October. So I just don't really see how the team is so significantly improved that the um, that a good, decent chunk of the upside falls into the 9-10 win range to make the playoffs. Um, another team, I think that the Cowboys are still a little bit overrated. I think uh, Eagles and Cowboys, their division price should be much closer to an to an e uh, equal level than it is right now. I think the, the Cowboys losing Mary Cooper, Cedric Wilson, not having Michael Gallup uh, for at least the the um, pub time early in the in the year. I think that is going to matter. That their defense is in for some regression. So I think the Eagles should be in terms of future prices, um, uh, in terms of division prices. I think they should be closer to the Cowboys and where I'm also a little bit higher on than the market or let's say also compared to in-division teams like the Chargers is the Broncos. Um, I think the uh, off-season narrative about Russell Wilson being cooked or rushed is like the silliest thing I've ever heard. Um, I mean... <laughs> I really went down the rabbit hole and got some um, physician takes on his injury from last season. And usually when you have that metal finger injury without anything else, it usually takes like a 12-week recovery from that metal finger. He played after five weeks and he also had like uh, twice, uh, two uh, broken bones and his metal finger also got... Um, um, was it torn I, ligament? I, I think there was some ligament damage. Ligament damage? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ligament then, damage. We'll see. Yeah, we'll save our hot Broncos takes for that pod. But that is, I mean, just spoiler alert, I'm kind of with you on that, where um, they have a really high upside that I don't yes. know if they get there because there's so much unknown. Like bringing a good quarterback in doesn't always just work. Bringing in a new offensive mind doesn't always just work. But like if if both of those things are just slightly above average, this is the best receiving room, young receiving room. And I don't know, in a while that has a bunch of just crazy raw talent. And I know it could just work like, like they, if you like the Broncos, I think you don't just take a win total over on the Broncos. I think that's a, Hey, the Broncos can win the AFC because this just clicks. This offense is just yes. suddenly electric because Russ can finally, God, I thought we were done saying he cooks, but like I almost did say it. Like there, there, there is some, there's some fun stuff about the Broncos. And then on the other hand, like none of it could work out. It could be an utter disaster. But 
I, I really do think they they have a wide range for me. Yeah, um, that's a fun one once we get to it for sure. I'm excited to see how Hackett and Russell fit together. They're a little bit misfit pieces in terms of what Hackett likes to call and what the. Um, that's I think that's the unknown. Drew is like, is he a smart enough man to know what he has and be like, hey, guess what? This is not a rookie that I should try to, you know. Sure. It's not a ma- malle- sure. malleable rookie that you try to fit into what you're doing, which I don't think you should do with rookies either. He is a veteran. We know what we have. Do I form an offense around him? That works. There's a problem, though. There's a problem, though. The NFL kind of solved Russell Wilson with the too high. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of like, I like really, I think, I think, I think Hackett, I think the, is the key. And again, like, I'm not. Right. This is not this is not like the difference between the Broncos being six and eleven versus eleven and six here. This is like the floor for that team is high. The question is if Hackett can basically teach Russ new tricks, basically get Russ to attack more parts of the field than he used to. The parts of the you know, keep the defenses from going too high in the in the blind, then all of a sudden, that's a very dynamic offense that could get you to 11, 12 wins. Um, and that, that's where I wonder if we just haven't scratched the surface on Russ the last few years because it's been. You know, I don't know. Do you think the offensive your, teams have been a little subpar out there in Seattle? So yeah, Suma, what's yeah, your opinion? A lot going is, on. is is how much of how much of Russ's stagnation as a dynamic playmaker is because Seattle could not teach him new tricks and how much was it because he will not ever go there because of his physical limitations i think it has very little to do with himself i mean i think it's completely legit to say that at 33 years old he might not be the most dynamic runner anymore that's completely fair but as a passer when you adjust for the metal injury like when you look at all all the the available data uh, pre-injury it's a top five quarterback very easily. And I mean, um, I what I did was I said, okay, a metal finger usually takes 12 weeks to heal. He played after five weeks. So let's say nine weeks would have been a very fair, um, let's say, healing time during the week, but probably still too optimistic to be completely able to throw the ball. So like if we strip out the four games where he played too early, we are talking about statistic, a statistical f- profile of a bottom top 10 quarterback. And if that's a decline with, with a mallet <laughs> finger and with Pete Carroll running the show and with a shaky offensive line, I mean, I just think that um, we are talking about a top five, top six-ish quarterback uh, who, is, who has like seven years left in the tank, who is going to Denver with a coordinator or slash head coach uh, that really was at the front line of turning uh, Aaron Rodgers into a quarterback that perfectly executes within structure. And I also think that people are probably underrating his supporting cast in Denver. That is my opinion because Jerry Judy, I think is arguably one of the best world runners in this game. He had just had incredible injury, bad injury luck and was getting balls from Tay Bridgewater and Drew Locke. Uh, Curtin Sutton is one year removed from his ACL. He should be back to 
maybe his former self. Tim Patrick would be a alleged wide receiver two on, on many offenses in this league. He's the wide receiver three. And then we have KJ Hamler also KJ. coming back fr from injury. It's, it's like a, four good young receivers. Yes, it's a exactly. silly. It, 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 the more I thought, and I, it's funny that you brought up the AFC West and we're going off on an AFC West tangent because it is probably the most interesting one. I thought about this. I'm like, all four teams could finish first or fourth or anywhere in between, and none of it would be like that surprising. Oh, like, and again, if there were injuries, anybody can finish fourth because they lose their quarterback. But I'm saying like the quarterbacks stay healthy and it's just all these teams are close to the same level and they all finish with between like eight and 11 wins. And there's like tiebreakers involved. It feels like it's just going to be a crazy, uh, you know, a crazy race for 18 weeks. I'm excited. I'll I'm tell excited. you what. I don't want Denver to be bad. I don't <laughs> want the, the 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 new receivers in Oakland or excuse me Vegas to not work out. And I want the Chargers to finally be good because like I want this wild ass division. It's oh, not yeah. something Must you, watch every week, you've had sure. that many yes. times where it's like the last time we saw this competitive of a division was the NFC East a couple of years ago where mm -hmm. all the teams were like two games below five hundred. Yeah. <laughs> in a yeah. whole different I'm, way. I'm pretty open-minded about the ceiling for the offense. I think the defense is overrated. Um, right now, if you kind of decompose all the power numbers, they are the number two rated defense in terms of uh, expected performance this year across their schedule, which is way too high. Uh, Broncos. And the th yeah, Broncos. And okay. they're the 13th rated offense, which is too low. Um, yes. So that is that has a very clear and obvious recipe. You bet the over. Um, and so I think, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're average, the average total across the 17 games that the Broncos play this year. You want to guess what it is? Um, I would guess when they are second in defense and 13th on offense is probably below 48, 46.2, 46 is the average total in a Broncos game this season. Okay. So that means I will probably bet they're over four times, five times. Uh, maybe more than that. We'll see. Before <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Denver, Houston, week, uh, what was that? Week two, a total 42. Okay. Denver could get there themselves. Davis Mills is garbage time king. That's one of my favorite totals in the early part of the season. Um, all right. Well, uh, good stuff. Any, uh, any final thoughts here on uh, how the season resolves? Uh, and, uh, interested to give us uh, a way too early Super Bowl prediction. So, first of all, I think the most interesting topic to me is the evolution of the two high defense and their impact of uh, impact on scoring. So, I think when we see a, let's say, evolution of defenses that go more and more to a too high structure, it will severely have an impact on offenses and especially young quarterbacks. Who, are, who will struggle to, to solve that problem on the fly. And then we will probably get a whole new cycle of offenses trying to figure out how to beat that stuff. And then I think it will be interesting to uh, find the timing of where that is, where totals become may, may probably a little bit more attractive towards the over. Interesting. It is everything that happens in the NFL. Whenever there's something like, oh, guess what? They figured it out. They can stop this offense now. Like, guess what? They have six months to counter. Like, 
it's like yeah. a chess game where you have unlimited time. Like that, there's going to always be this this new wrinkle that you know the, this is the this is the too high safety buster. Like someone's gonna say something silly like that, and it's gonna be halfway true. It's true with anything else, and some things take longer to figure out. Some things don't take very long at all. Like well, the the, the natural the wildcat yeah. offense worked. That was like two weeks. Like yeah. that was that was very exciting for those two weeks that one year, and you know it still gets used a little. But I mean, just like the the way that uh, you know the teams defend RPOs differently in the last couple of years. It's yes. it's just constant evolution of like you're going to throw this at us offensively. We're going to change and use this defensively because they're sitting there and just staring at. They don't just watch their film; they'll watch everybody's film all off season figure out what where they're deficient how they can change things and and then again it's a copycat league and it doesn't take long like you see that i mean it happens in season one team yes. figures out how to stop something that's been highly effective and the next week someone's doing it is it's wild Jared Goff in 2018 against yeah. those cover two cover four looks late in the season <laughs> exactly yeah. the same yeah i think it's reasonable to assume that the offenses are going to have stuff out of the gate and that you're going to see higher scoring early in the season. Uh, and that uh, I, cause realistically, like last year it felt like scoring was down in large part because a lot of teams were using cover two more effectively. And I don't think it ever got solved in season, but nothing ever gets solved in season. It always takes the full, like full off season to, you know, get new ideas, try things out and then adopt what is working on the fly. Um, and I think that's probably what we'll see in 2022. Um, who do you think at the end stands atop the pile? Okay, so to the listeners out there, please don't blindly bet this. Um, <laughs> I'm too late. I already have yeah, I have the book open. I'm ready. <laughs> um, I don't want to be lazy here, so I'm going with Broncos Rams. Broncos Rams. All right. I think Russell Resurgence. Yes, uh, I think the Broncos are a little bit underrated. I can see. I can certainly see a path where this is just a very, very good offense, and it's not a defense that uh, will at some point completely collapse without any significant injuries. I think it's not a great defense. I mean, I completely disagree with their market implied second uh, second rating, but um, it's also not a defense that's completely bad. I mean, they have some play. Uh, Playmakers like Justin Simmons, Patrick Sertain, Ronald Darby is like a very solid uh, cornerback too. They have a decent edge rush if both guys stay healthy. So I think it's it's a defense that will not put too much harm on Russell Wilson offense, uh, so to speak. Okay. What's well, a fun take? I like that. Um, certainly whoever emerges from the West is going to be battle tested. I'll tell you that much. Uh, so that'll be fun. All right, man. Well, we'll let you go. Enjoy the uh, the rest of your off season okay. preparations, and uh, hopefully, we get a chance to uh, uh, to catch up with you in season. I certainly will. Hopefully, so um, yeah. Best of luck, and appreciate all your all your time and input on the uh, the space, the handicapping space. Thanks for having me on, guys. Broncos, you see, uh, to win the AFC press, Andy. Rookie, rookie head coach is a is a gutsy call. Twenty-one to one win the Super Bowl.